Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians 1. In the opening verses of the book of Colossians, verses 15 through 23 in particular, Paul introduces us to the supremacy of Christ. How glorious a king he is, how he is supreme in his personhood. For in him, in Christ, the fullness of God dwells bodily. He's supreme in creation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And that includes not only the world we see, but the church we also to get to engage with. He is head of the church, and that includes being supreme in reconciliation. He's the one that by grace took us from the grave and brought us to life. He's the one that took us from the mine and brought us to life and changed our lives. And Paul now, verse 24, and through into this next section, he starts to give us a supreme perspective on his own resulting ministry. What God has called him to, in particular. But also in doing so, he gives us a portrait of what faithful ministry looks like, not only for him, but actually for all of us as well. And so let's read together Colossians 1 verses 24 through to the end of verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glorious of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray, would you open our eyes to your word this morning? Lord, we want to behold you. And in doing so, we want to behold what you've called us to. Lord, help us to see Paul this morning. And then help us to understand that we are called to imitate him as he imitates you. Lord, would your grace be upon us. Lord, whatever's going on in our homes right now, would there be grace? Would there be ears to hear? In Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, just this last week I heard from my friend Jared Mellinger, lead pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church in Philadelphia, about a fake news story, a fabricated story that had been circulating a few years ago in the United States, but just recently had been picked up by a Jacksonville newspaper and published as if it was true. This then is the article that they actually published, the headline was Florida couple arrested for selling tickets to heaven. The story goes as follows. The couple was arrested for selling hundreds of golden tickets to heaven for $100 per ticket, telling buyers that their tickets were made of solid gold and that each ticket reserved the buyer a place in heaven. According to the article, the Florida man said in his police statement, I don't care what the police say. 
The tickets are solid gold. They aren't just cut up two by fours, I spray painted gold. No, it was Jesus who gave them to me behind the KFC and said to sell them so that I could get money to go to outer space, where in turn I met an alien named Stevie, who said that if I get the cash together, he would take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his own planet. So try and send this innocent man to jail and see what happens next. Well, this article then ends with this following statement that reads, Police said they confiscated $10,000 in cash off this couple, some drug paraphernalia, and a baby alligator. You know, as I heard that story this week, the first thing that came into my mind was quite simply only in America. Only in America would a story like this actually get coverage, and only in America would surely a newspaper print this as if it is fact, and as if it has actually happened. The Jacksonville Times did indeed go on to apologize a few weeks later, saying that, oops, sorry, it wasn't actually a true story at all, our mistake. But how sad that an American newspaper actually picked it up, thinking it was real. And yet, in all honesty... Part of the reason that I think a story like this can be believed as true is because there is sadly so much unfaithfulness that happens all around the world under the banner and name of ministry. Lies being told by ministers, scams taking place in ministry, crazies that are quite simply in it just for their own gain. But in background to all of that, what we have here in this text is a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry. A wonderful portrait of what faithful gospel ministry actually looks like. And a wonderful portrait of how God intended ministry to actually be. See, Paul gets saved all the way back in Acts chapter 9 when you read of his story. He is on his way to Damascus. And he's on his way to Damascus, in effect, as a Christian terrorist. He wants to find all men and women and children in Damascus who are Christians, pull them back to Jerusalem, see them tried and ideally killed for their faith. And yet on the way to Damascus, he encounters the risen Christ. He is literally knocked off his horse by the risen Christ. He sees Christ, he hears Christ talk to him, and in that moment, he gives his life to serving Jesus Christ. In a moment... He goes from being a persecutor of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. And in that moment, Jesus calls him to ministry, to gospel ministry for him. And there's no doubt as you examine Paul's life that God used Paul in a unique way. He was an apostle and he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was the first guy out in the shoot, if you will, the first guy out proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to Gentiles. And yet in all honesty, my friends, I want you to understand you don't have to be an apostle to be in ministry. Because if you are a Christian, then you are already in ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a parent, then you are in ministry to your children. Those children have been entrusted to you by the Lord himself, for you to care for and train in the way they should go. You are already, as a mom and a dad, and in ministry. You're in ministry. If you're married, then you are in ministry to your spouse without any shadow of a doubt at all. There is a calling on your life towards one another. 
If you are a single, then like all Christians, you are in ministry to your friends and your communities. You are in ministry to your church and your gospel community and your growth groups. As Patrick pointed out so well this morning, we are all called to be ambassadors of Christ. That is a position of ministry, which we're all called to do for the glory of the Lord. And if you're a youth, you're in ministry too. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in ministry. You're an ambassador of Christ. And you are in ministry to your families, to your school friends, to your youth groups. And when you realize just how incredible that is, this wonderful portrait then of faithful gospel ministry takes on a whole new meaning. Because you realize this isn't just a story about Paul. This is a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry that we're all to seek to learn from and ultimately to emulate. So I have three points this morning to help us as we're all ministers in the gospel together. If you're a Christian, you're a minister in the gospel. There's three things then we can learn then from Paul's ministry about what being a faithful minister really is. Here's the first. Number one, a minister's attitude towards suffering. This is where all faithful ministry begins. plays a massive part in all ministry. It is the minister's attitude towards suffering. This is what he says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now I rejoice. I mean, there is no doubt what Paul's response to suffering is. Paul explicitly mentions his response in the opening words of verse 24. His response to suffering is that he rejoices. What a startling and surprising response this is, don't you think? When he faces suffering, his initial response is rejoicing to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I want you to know this isn't unusual for Paul. This is common for Paul. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we see Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. It has been a long day for them. They have been stripped. They have been beaten with rods. They have been jailed. And it gets to midnight. What are they doing? Here's what I'm doing. I'm moaning. That's what I'm doing. What are they doing? They are not moaning. In verse 25, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Having been stripped, having been beaten with rods, having been jailed, here's their response. Lord, thank you. We sing to you of your praises. What? This is not a common, uncommon response for Paul. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, this is what we read. He says, through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? You rejoice in the glorious gospel and then you rejoice in your sufferings? Yeah. We see him saying the same in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. 
and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I mean, what type of baptized lunatic says things like that? I mean, this is just off the charts. Not only would you rejoice with me, you know, I rejoice in my sufferings, and then would you rejoice with me in my sufferings as well? I mean, this is just baffling and standout and surprising stuff from the Apostle Paul. And make no mistake, his suffering was both real and significant. He outlines it in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 28. As I said a few weeks ago, but I want to say again, this is Paul's life. Okay, let's not think, oh, he's just some type of super apostle. You know, he's never really faced real life. He can't relate to me. Oh, I think he can. This is his story. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. That's Paul's life. That is a snapshot of the entirety of Paul's life. And then we read here, now I rejoice in my sufferings. What is up with that? What does Paul understand that maybe we find hard at different times? How is he able to say, in the right sense, I consider my suffering joy? How is he able to say it? Well, my friends, he's able to say it because of two reasons. First and foremost, he's able to say it because he is a man that kept his eyes fixed on Christ. In and through everything that was going on. His eyes weren't here. His emotions weren't going up and down with what he was seeing here. His eyes and his emotions are fixed on him. He's amazed with Jesus Christ. And secondarily then, he is fully aware and fully believing that Christ is purposefully and intimately involved in it all. So all that he sees here Though it may be painful, though it may be difficult, as he fixes his eyes on Christ, he's fully believing, Lord, I trust you, I know you, I know you are intimately and wonderfully involved in my suffering. Lord, this is hard, but Lord, I trust you. And so I rejoice in you. See, in Romans 8.28, he says, And we know, we know, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That was the cry of Paul's life. Listen, I get shipwrecked, I get stoned, I get beaten. Man, this is tough. But I know that he will use all things for my good and his glory. I know that I can trust him. I know that he died in my place. And I know that even in these sufferings and difficulties, he is actively and purposefully involved. He is using these things for my good and his glory. I know it. 
And so he chooses then appropriately to say, even in these sufferings, then I rejoice because I trust him and I love him and I know he's actively involved in these things for my good and his glory. Changes everything. His perspective changes everything. His choice in suffering to look to Christ and trust Christ rather than to blame Christ and be irritated at Christ, that changes everything. And quite frankly, it changes the entirety of his ministry. As when he faces suffering, he chooses to rejoice knowing that he can trust the Lord and that the Lord is actively and purposefully involved for his good and the Father's glory. You see, folks, our response matters. When suffering comes knocking, when trials come knocking, our response, it matters. And I'm not seeking to pastorally minimize suffering. Paul isn't seeking to pastorally minimize suffering. But what he is doing is helping us see our response to suffering genuinely matters. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, what we know about the divine purpose for a trial makes all the difference in informing our understanding of the trial. But how we actually respond to a trial will ultimately determine whether we actually experience the divinely intended purpose of that trial or not. It's so true. A trial, suffering, it gives us a crossroads. We have in that moment a choice to make. Will I trust him and know him and look to him? Or will I be irritated with him and distance myself from him? It's the choice we all have to make. Tim Keller in his wonderful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, echoes the same thing. He says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. And no, you won't. Trials and suffering and difficulties, they are a crossroads. And as that crossroads comes, you have to make a choice. As Paul is being stoned, as Paul is being beaten, as Paul is being shipwrecked, he has to make a choice. And his choice is, I will trust you. I will believe in you. And I will believe that you will supernaturally use this for my good, making me more like Christ and your ultimate glory. That was the choice Paul always made in suffering and always made in trials. He chose to look to Christ and he believed as he looked to Christ and entertained the suffering that he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is not a reference there to the atonement. Paul is not saying, you know what, the atonement wasn't quite enough so I'm doing some things now that is just going to help that. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is Christ always said there would be suffering. He always said man would be born to trouble. He always promised that suffering would take place and that he would use it for our good and his glory. So I'm just filling up some of that affliction. I'm filling up some of that suffering. It's evidence that God is at work in my life and so I will rejoice in my sufferings. Understanding he will use this for my good and the furtherance of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in the local church.
My friends, I want to ask you then. If you are suffering, then are you aware that in your suffering, you are also filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Are you aware that as you walk through trial, that he will use all these things for your good and his glory? Are you aware that he is actively involved? And are you aware then of just how much this perspective can transform the complete way you view your suffering? Suffering isn't just a waste of time. Suffering is an opportunity to become more like Christ and to be used by Christ. And to be used by Christ in ministry. When you watch people suffering, trusting God. And when you watch them suffering, saying, listen, this is hard, this is difficult. But I trust him and I know him. Oh my. You affect tens and tens of people in the church. Because they see it and go, that's amazing. You're experiencing something of Christ that I want. You you actually exhibit being a trophy of grace in that moment. Suffering gives us that type of opportunity. Do you see that? Are you embracing the choice? Are you looking to Christ and believing that he is actively involved like Paul was? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace... It says, God appoints his ministers to be sorely exercised, both from without and within, that they may sympathize with others and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin and the infirmities of the flesh and the way the Lord supports and bears all who trust in him. So he does. The Lord will see us go through things at many times, but if we choose to look up, then our ministry will be a hundred times stronger as a result. Because we'll be able to relate to people and talk to people and help people see, yeah, I've felt that, I've experienced that, my heart was going there as well. The Lord walks us through things in part so that we can minister to others. Folks, don't waste that. Paul never wasted that. And what we learn right here then is a most important lesson about a minister's attitude towards suffering. Namely, he saw it as a moment of rejoicing for his good and for the Father's glory and for the sake of the church. But that's not all. Number two, a minister's charge to the word. The minister's charge to the word. Look with me at verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. What is at the heart of this God-given ministry? What is at the heart of the God-given ministry that he's given you? It is to make the word of God Fully known. What is it that I'm meant to be doing as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a fellow member of a gospel community, as a growth group, as a part of the church? Well, I want to use my gifts and abilities wherever I can to make the word of God fully known. That is what we're called to. And oh my goodness, what a word this is, don't you think? What a treasure. What a profound treasure we hold in our hands. This is what Paul says about this book. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Oh my goodness. This contains absolutely all we need that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Whatever they're facing in their lives, if we get drilled into this word and we stick to this word and we meditate on this word, it has the ability to allow us to be complete in Christ. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh my goodness, this book is alive. This book, we read the book, but it reads us. This is how God speaks to us and communicates to us and brings things to lives in our hearts. That's why we read with the psalmist in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man, supremely happy. Supremely happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Supremely happy. Supremely happy is the man or woman that give themselves to this word, that meditate on it day and night. He then tells us in verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. I mean, what a wonderful word picture, isn't it? The man that gives himself to meditating on this word day and night, he will be durable, he will be stable, he will be ready to help people in season and out of season. In fact, in all that he does, he will prosper. What a book. What a word. And so my friends, when it comes to the charge and our ministry that we're all in in different contexts, What we must understand, people don't need to then hear all about our philosophies and our politics and our positive thoughts. No, they need to hear about the word of God from our lips. It's the word of God that has power to change lives. It's the word of God that James tells us has the ability to save ourselves and our hearers. Not our philosophies or our positive thinking or our politics. No, it's the word of God that has the ability to change lives. And make no mistake, my friend, it is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that appropriately takes center stage in this great book. That's what verse 26 and 27 is all about. It says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Right at the center of this book is the glories of the gospel. The glories of Calvary. And Paul is outlining it there afresh for saying, listen, this is your story. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now you are alive in Christ. That was, that was a mystery for the ages. 
But then Christ came. He actually physically came. The fullness of Him who dwells bodily. And He died in our place. People didn't quite understand that's the way it was going to work in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. But it's not a mystery to you. And right at the, st- right at the center then of this gospel message is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. My friends, wherever you are in this book, you need to understand that Every page ultimately whispers his name. All the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. All the way through. And then the Gospels point right at Jesus. And then the New Testament letters, they point right back to Jesus and help us understand how we're to live in light of what he's done. And then we go all the way to Revelation that points once again to the return of Jesus. This whole book is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And so what people need to hear from us as we minister to them in our gospel communities and our growth groups and our friendship structures and our homes, it isn't our politics. It isn't our philosophies. It isn't our positive thoughts. They might not even need a hug off you. What they need is the word of God. The word of God sets people free. The word of God changes people's lives. The great George Whitfield once said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. It's so true. Other men may preach the gospel better than I do. They may preach the word of God better than I do, but they do not preach a better gospel and they do not preach a better word. My friends, this is the same word that we all have multiple copies of in our houses. Same word. They may preach it better, but there's not a better Bible. Preach it. As we minister to people, when you examine Paul's example, a faithful minister, they not only have a good and helpful attitude in suffering, but number two, they charge to the word. They use the word to set people free. Not their politics or their philosophies or positive thoughts. No, they use the word of God. The word of God to change people's lives. That's why at Sovereign Grace we want to so eagerly be and encourage you to be a people who are devoted to the word of God. That's what changes people's lives. It's what will change your life. It's what will change other people's lives. It's why we need to be devoted to it and riveted to it and examining it. This will set people free. Not Fox News. Not Sky News. Not Facebook, not the internet. This word, this word changes people's lives. And then number three, the third part of this portrait of a faithful minister is a minister's purpose in it all. That's my third point, a minister's purpose in it all. Verse 28, there is a goal in ministry. There is an aim in what we do. Whether it be in your homes, whether it be with your friends, whether it be in your groups, whether it be in youth club, there's an aim in what we've been called to. This is what it is. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the purpose and aim and goal of our God-given ministry? 
It's this. To one day present everyone to the Lord mature in Christ. See, my friends, the word present here in this particular context has in view nothing other than the final day. The word present talks to us about the day to come when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ himself. When we will all stand before the judgment of God and give an account before our lives. And Paul's point is, I want to use my gifts and abilities. I want to use my sufferings and this word of God to do all I can to help people. So that when they get there on that day, they don't just hear, welcome home, son and daughter. Incredible though that will be. But they also hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul wants to use everything he has, all his energy and abilities and strength for those that have been entrusted to his care to seek to lay his life down for them. Why? So that one day they may be presented to the Lord, mature in Christ, and then hear, well done. Well done. See, to Paul, it was not just about getting people through the door. It was about leading them to Christ and then teaching them the fullness of what Christ has taught them so that they may live it out in their lives and in their ministries so that one day they may be presented to Christ mature, complete, fully grown. You know, Martin Luther once said, there are just two days on my calendar, this day and that day. That was exactly how Paul lived. There are just two days on my calendar. This day, where I get to do ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, when you will be presented to Christ. And so I want to do all I can this day. I want to give all of my gifts and abilities and energies this day to help you in any way that I can. Why? So that ultimately on that day you will hear well done. So that on that day you will be presented to him mature and grown and fully formed. There are only two days on his calendar. This day and that day. He wanted to give his life away to serving people this day. In light of that day. He wanted to use all of his abilities in his ministry this day to prepare people for that day. He wasn't just an evangelist. He was an evangelist and disciple maker. He was the full remit. He was a minister of the gospel all the way to the end. And in this text, in effect, he's exhorting us to do exactly the same. In our ministries. To our children, to our spouse, to our gospel communities, to our growth groups, to our church, to our youth club. Using all that we have, all the ministry that God has given us through our suffering and through the word. To bring to bear things on people's lives. Why? So that they may be presented to him on that final day complete, mature, not just in but mature. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that we can sometimes face in that, from one minister to another, is it's so easy to put off till tomorrow what in reality needs to get done today. 
We so often think, oh, you know what, you're right. I need to get better at that. I need to do this. I really need to be somebody of the word. And Man, it's got to change. But we just keep kicking it down the road. As if, well, I, I do need to grow in that. And tomorrow I'll make a start. But one day, tomorrow won't come. Tomorrow will just be that day. James 1 says it this way. Same James 4. Sorry, James 4, verses 13 and 14. This is exactly what he addresses. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James himself is exhorting us. Don't go thinking that you've just got tomorrow and the day after and the day after that as if it's just, oh, it's a must. No, no, think about what you need to get done today because tomorrow might not exist. My friends, I want to ask you this question then. As you consider your ministry, as consider those that God has brought into your life to minister to, here's the question I want you to think through and prayerfully answer. If you were to live with just two days on your calendar, then how would that affect your God-given ministry this day? If you were to think about your parenting, if you were to think about your marriage, if you were to think about your life and your workplace and your community and your church and your gospel community, all those that differ in different measures to different ones of us, if you were to think about them, and you were to live with regard to them with just two days on your calendar, then how would that affect your God-given ministry this day? What would you be doing this day in light of that day? Now Paul mentions in verse 28 just some more facets of this ministry that we've been called to. He talks about in verse 28 how we are called to proclaim Christ. That's who we proclaim, not a philosophy, but a person. We proclaim Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme one of all. And we warn everyone, he says. Well, that's pretty unpopular these days, isn't it? If you're a millennial, the thought might be horrific. Warn everyone, how do you do that? Because we live in a day and age in a community that simply believes, well, what is good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. You, you can't say, and it would be inappropriate to say that what I'm believing is wrong. Everybody just has to live in the vanilla. Everybody has to be right in all ways. We live in the age of autonomy, and who are you to say that what I think is wrong? But my friends, quite frankly, things are just wrong, and we need to be willing to warn people you know, that's why in the, in the olden days, many years ago, and you see pictures of old chapels and the, the pastor would be about like 10 foot in the air on some wooden area and everybody would just be staring up to him. It wasn't because he was on an ego trip. You know why they did that? It was because they wanted everybody seated under the word of God so that everybody would naturally understand my life is not my own and I sit under this word. So they would be really high lifted up to remind the congregation week after week after week, we all sit under this word. We don't live in the age of vanilla. We don't live in the age where everybody is actually right. There is only one thing right and it is this word. And where people are cutting across this word, guess what we have to do? 
particularly when they're Christians or claiming to be Christians, we have to lovingly, with all wisdom, warn them. That's why the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when they come back to you and say, oh, are you judging me? No, I'm just trying to be a faithful friend. I'm trying to ask you a question and warn you. And that may be unpopular in our generation, but it is not about our generation. It's about following the word of God. And then he says also that we are to teach everyone. To teach everyone. Different contexts, different times, to open our mouths on the word of God and proclaim it to those that we're talking to in our words and through our lives. Listen, if you were to live with just two days on your calendar, then how would that affect your God-given ministry this day? Because one day there won't be a tomorrow. May we make every single day count. My friends, as you examine this call on our lives, you realize it is indeed a high and holy calling on our lives. And you can quickly think, who is sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient to actually do this? I mean, this is a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry, but I ain't no Paul. How am I going to manage this? How is this going to be possible in my life? Well, the answer to that is verse 29. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil. He's aware this is hard. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a gentle stroll. There are things we have to actively do for the kingdom of God. For this I toil. And then he gives us the secret. Struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. It's beautiful. What Paul is saying there quite simply is this. For this I toil. It's hard. There are things about this that are difficult to me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I toil with all his energies. I toil with all the power that he is going to give me. And Christ is in me. He tells us in verse 27. For which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul's aware of that. Christ the one who is just placarded before our eyes. Christ, the one who is supreme in personhood. The one who is in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. The one who is supreme in all creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The one who is supreme in the church. The one who is supreme in reconciliation. Who brought us from darkness to light and from blindness to sight. He now lives in me. The firstborn of all the dead, the one who rose again in all his power and splendor, lives in me. So yet not I, but through Christ in me. Will I suffer? Do I suffer? Yes. But yet not I, through Christ in me, and I rejoice. I need to preach the word, but it's, it's so hard. There's so many other things trying to vie for my attention. Yes. But yet not I, but through Christ in me. He will strengthen us and give us grace to communicate these words. 
I lived with just two days on my calendar. How on earth am I going to give my life to ministering to people so that may be presented on that last day before the Lord? Complete. How am I going to do it? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So my friends, I want to encourage you. In and through then all your ministry, look to Christ. It's all about him. His powers and his energies working through you. So simply cry out, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And look to him. And then rise and go forth. And be the ministry he's called you to be. Let's pray. Lord, in all honesty, whatever our season is, and whatever our situation is, there is a high and holy calling on all of our lives. You've called us all to be ministers to you. You've called us all to be ambassadors of you. You didn't just pluck us out of the grave and then save us and then say, okay, on with your life. You pull us out the grave and you stand us up and you say, now, I want you to be a minister for me. Be my ambassador. Lord, that is a high and a holy call that is daunting for every single one of us. We feel our knees buckling within us. But Lord, would the cry of our hearts honestly be, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I cannot do this by myself. But through him who gives me strength, I can do all things. Would that be the cry of our hearts? And would all glory go to you. Amen.